question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, that's CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast from thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, rising urban marginality, ethno-racial domination, deindustrialization, incarceration, are these issues related? Well, today on the show, we'll be hearing from leading sociologist Louis Wacant on urban marginality, polarization, the urban precariat and the rise of the penal state. You're tuned into The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Louis Wacant is professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley and a researcher with the European Center of Sociology and Political Science in Paris. And his research focuses on comparative urban marginality with a focus on Chicago's hyperghetto, uh, which he calls it, and uh, Paris's racialized urban periphery. Wacant's research also looks at broader issues of urban poverty, ethno-racial domination, the penal state, and social theory more broadly. He is author of many books and articles, including Urban Outcasts, A Comparative Sociology of Advanced Marginality, Prisons of Poverty, and Punishing the Poor, the Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity. And on November 1st um, of last year, uh, Louis Wacant gave a public lecture, uh, which was organized by the University of British Columbia's Lew Institute for Global Studies and the UBC uh, Department of Geography. His lecture uh, is entitled The Production and Penalization of the Precariat in the Neoliberal Age. And we'll be hearing this lecture in two parts. This is part one of two um, over uh, over two weeks. And... um, so this is uh, urban sociologist Louis Wacant here on The City, here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to draw on Bourdieu's theory of social space and symbolic power, and I'm going to build a bridge between my two books, Urban Outcasts and Punishing the Poor, uh, to bring into a single model uh, um, the emergence of the precariat the precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat, um, the emergence of that precariat, which shifts in public policies that have both caused the emergence of the precariat and then are there to handle the consolidation of the precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat, the problem categories and problem territories in the dualizing cities. So 
The emergence of the precariat on the one hand, that's a renowned cast, and then shifts in public policies aimed at managing problem populations and problem territories in the dualizing cities that's essentially going to be uh, punishing the poor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to track uh, the rise of a new regime of advanced marginality that I characterize as uh, defined by the fragmentation, fueled by the fragmentation of wage labor, by the recoiling of the protective net of the social welfare state, and by a distinctive phenomenon that I highlight in a outcast called territorial stigmatization. And then I'm going to argue that, uh, that states have responded to the objective and social, to the objective and subjective social insecurity that this new regime of urban poverty has spawned uh, by rolling out its penal apparatus, by essentially a, a, a government technique that I characterize as punitive containment, by deploying the police, the courts, and carceral institutions, jails, the prison, parole, probation, and so on, in and around the neighborhoods of relegation that are the incubator of the precariat. And I'm going to propose, in particular, that inter international variations in the intensity, the concentration, and the segmentation of advanced marginality are matched by differences in the vigor and the modalities of penalization of poverty in the different societies, in keeping with the different architecture of the bureaucratic field and the texture of citizenship evolved in each country. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have the time to go international too much, but I can send you to uh, several volumes that actually have taken that model and have tried to apply it to different countries. There is recently a volume by uh, Lee and Squires that came out uh, in England called Urban urban marginality and penalization that covers England. There's a book by Sanchez on Spain. Uh, there's a, a, a book by Batista Malaguti that just came out, a collective book that takes model that I propose and applies it to Brazil. Uh, and there's also a, a, a great a young German political scientist by the name of Marcus Müller, who's been just putting out paper after paper on Mexico. Uh, I just got one this morning prior to leaving and showing that, oh, that you seem to have built a model for Mexico. Well, I don't know anything about Mexico, but it works perfectly. You adapt here and there. So, there. so I'm not going to have time to go in that direction, but I, I'll be happy to point you um, uh, in the direction of work that has been done that shows that the model is not simply, although it was constructed for core countries of the capitalist north, and particularly based on the most advanced of the United States, it has applicability not only to Western Europe, but to what I would call second world societies, and particularly uh, to Latin America, and to including the, the former Soviets, the, the, the nations that have emerged out of the former Soviet empire, I think is also another area where much of the, the rise of the precariat, the structurally precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat has, 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 has coalesced. And then that a response by local and central governments to the coalescence of this precariat has been to ramp up the police, the courts, and the prison system as a way to curb the disorders associated with the rise of that precariat and as a way to signal the authority and the sovereignty of the state in an era where the state sees its sovereignty eroding. And so that's essentially what I'm going to argue. So I'm going to essentially take you on a whirlwind tour and tell you an analytic tale highlighting key concepts and mechanisms in these two books, each of which sums up over a decade of research. I'm going to be, to be deliberately savage my own work. I'm going to be theoretically crude, conceptually schematic, and empirically simplistic for the sake of clarity and the interest of time, and also for igniting discussion, because I'll be very happy to introduce qualifications and nuances in responses to, to your question. Also, I feel like, you know, in a presentation like this, in the, you know, in the lecture, you know, there's, there's, there are two books that run over 800 pages together, and there's probably another 1,000 pages of written text. 
if you want the precise, you know, technical, well done, well documented, you know, go to the go to the meeting where. Uh, so hopefully I will encourage you, I'll incite you to go to the books or to go back to the books if you realize that you've missed the story. And so what I'm going to start to do is I'm going to start clarifying the epistemological ground on which uh, I stand as I, as I develop this work and, and to show you how much of this work is essentially taking Bourdieu into the ghetto. You know, and it's an aspect of the work that sort of goes without saying for me, but, but it, it sometimes goes sometimes goes unnoticed by those who read the work. So I'm going to clarify a little bit the underpinnings um, of this. Uh, and then for those who want to read more, there's going to be a special issue of the journal, International Journal of Urban Regional Research on taking Bourdieu to town. Uh, that's going to essentially develop that. I think it's actually going to be two, two issues uh, with a dozen papers that are going to show the, <coughs> the productivity and the potency and the interest of taking Bourdieu to town. And there's also another special issue of environmental planning that uh, we're preparing on territorial stigmatization that takes up one of the themes of today's talk and develops it in, in different uh, countries and dimensions. But let, let, let's go first to the epistemological foundation uh, because oftentimes it's, 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 a, it's the reason for misunderstanding. Um, in the Anglo-American social sciences is, is dominated by positivism or variants of empiricism. And the German tradition, uh, the guys, Geistes Wissenschaften are dominated by hermeneutics. And when you come out of the French tradition, you come out from a different philosophical angle, from a different philosophy of science. This philosophy of science is, we can characterize it briefly by the expression of Dominique Lecourt, characterizing the work of Camille as historical rationalism. Historical rationalism is this philosophy of science so derived from the work of Gaston Bachelard, whom you're seeing on the left. Uh, and Georges Camillem, the philosophers, the mathematician Jean Carayès, and the intellectual historian Alexandre Coyere. The other person that you're seeing on the right here is Mark Brock, the historian, um, um, author of The Craft of the Historian, in particular, and founder of the Annal School of, of, of Social History, which really is an adaptation of the Durkheimian principles of sociology to history. Mm. And, and you can see here this rationalist um, lineage actually going all the way back from Condorcet down to Comte, uh, down to Durkheim, uh, on down to in its philosophical variant, Bachelard and Canguillem. Canguillem, who was the teacher of both Foucault and Bourdieu. This is one of the reasons for the similarity between them is that they have the same uh, mentor. Um, and let me just highlight what the principles of historical rationalism are. First, truth is conceived as error rectified in an endless effort to dissolve knowledge that is already there. And reason is the capacity not for rectitude, but for rectification. Second principle, uh, historical rationalism teaches that, and this is to quote from Ian, there is no fact that is not suffused by theory, no law that is not a momentarily stabilized hypothesis, and no theory that is not polemical. Mm -hmm. I think you will see that those principles well illustrated. <laughs> Third, historical rationalism insists that concepts be characterized not by static definitions, but by their uses and by their interrelationships in the research process. And this, in this perspective, the crucial scientific act is the construction of the object. Or as Bourdieu put it, and Bourdieu retranslated essentially Bachelard's epistemology, which is an epistemology issued from the study of physics and chemistry for the social sciences in his book, uh, The Craft of Sociology, which I studied as an undergrad, 
uh, in the University of Paris before I met Bourdieu. And so I was well prepared when I met him and commenced a 20-year collaboration and friendship with him. You know, I, it was like it wasn't like I had to. It was difficult to adopt that epistemology. That's the one I had already, uh, already learned. And so Bourdieu puts it thus: He says the social fact is conquered, conquered against common sense, both lay common sense, but also policy common sense, but also scholarly common sense. It is constructed and it is constated, observed. Uh, and this translates into three principles, the imperative of rupture, rupture with common sense, lay policy, scholarly. Um, and this, you will see how this becomes the stress that I put on the difference between folk concepts and analytical concepts. There must be a clear demarcation between these. Second principles, there's a formative role of theory in the construction of the object. Third principle, what we can call the principle of epistemic reflexivity, we must constantly know and control the operations whereby we produce our object in the very act of production, not after having written the book as a sort of rhetorical uh, preface or postface to the book. At every moment as we are doing our research operations, we must constantly reflect on what it is that we are doing that is actually producing the object that we are constructing, not finding, not discovering, not and I'm going to add three principles taken directly from Bourdieu. Uh, fourth principle, the relational or the topological mode of reasoning, where each element takes its meaning from, in, from its position in a system of relations, and where the archi architecture of those relations is the principle of the motion of the different elements. And I'm going to apply this relational or topological mode of reasoning to what I believe is the triad at the heart of Bourdieu's work, is the relationship between symbolic space, social space, and physical space. Symbolic space, the categories, the notions that we have in our head, uh, you know, things that exist in our imagination, so to speak, how this becomes translated into social space, into actual distribution of efficient resources to individuals and institutions that we can project into a two-by-two two dimension of volume of capital and composition of capital. And thirdly, physical space, you know, the, the built environment, and it's this triad, this relationship between social, symbolic space, social space, and physical space that is the underlying analytic that orients uh, a lot of my work. And uh, uh, lastly, I'm going to, uh, uh, or fifthly, the rule of triple historicization. This is how when I have to start up Bourdieu in one sentence. It's, it's not typically the presentation that Bourdieu gets, but Bourdieu is pretty easy when you get down to it. Because there's a small set of principles that he applies to everything. And one of these principles is the rule of triple historicization. Uh, elements come to cohere the way they do in sort of symbolic space, social space, physical space, because of the particular historical concatenation of action that assembled them in this particular configuration. Therefore, we must historicize three things, triple historicization. We must historicize the social world. For instance, we must do a history of neighborhoods of relegation. We must do a history of public policies. We must do a history of urban structures, but we must also historicize the agents, and this is where the category of habitus comes in. It's a way of saying we have to learn the history of the agents to know how the agent acquired a particular set of dispositions that leave him or her to see the world in a particular way and to act uh, on the possibilities of the world in that particular way. And the third is to historicize the categories of the analyst, including the concepts of urban sociology, including the concepts of, of criminology and urbanism. And then last, I'm going to stop here to go into the, the meat of the matter uh, for these preliminary, very French 
<laughs> but you're going to see, hopefully, when we return, when we come full circle to the conclusion, I hope to have, I hope that I will have shown you that it did serve a purpose to highlight those principles because those principles were necessary to be able to tell you this empirical theoretical story that I'm going to tell you. Uh, the fifth, the sixth principle is track the specific efficacy of symbolic power. How systems of classification issued from the social structure inform action and constitute both a tool in social struggles but also a stake in social struggles. And this principle is especially important when we analyze the fate of dispossessed and dishonored populations. We're going to see that one of the characteristics of the precariat is that it is dispossessed, it, is, it lacks <coughs> capital, it is down at the bottom of the material hierarchy, but it's also down in the material in, 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 the, in the hierarchy of honor. It's also down at the bottom of the second order, the symbolic order of honor. Um, and so when we have a dispossessed and a dishonored population, paying attention to symbolic power is particularly important because this is a population that has no control over its representation. They, this is a population that is named, categorized, characterized by outsiders, particularly professionals in cultural production, whether it be journalists, politicians, and of course sociologists, and of course state elites. So now, um, now if you go to the prologue of Urban Outcast, you will see, you will find an elaboration of those principles in the form of a framework for the comparative sociology of urban polarization from below. If I, if I had to give me a chance to give two lectures, I'd return to them and show you how. Actually, it's funny because for me, these five pages in the book are what made the book worth doing and writing. And I think they are the least remarked. Uh, you know, because it's, it seems to be like your principle, blah, 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 so I think people go to the substantive results, but they don't see that really the meat of the matter in these five pages. Then initially, actually, I prepared a lecture that was going to be just on these five pages, and then I decided, no, too broad an audience, people will be disappointed, so let's go to some people's broader. But let's, <laughs> let's go now to the triangular, the fateful triangular tangle of class, ethnicity, and state. Um, now, I've given you a set of epistemological principles, but that, what do we use them for? One way to describe the research agenda that I'm speaking about today is to say that it, it arises from mating the theories of Pierre Bourdieu with the problems of Bill Wilson. This is Pierre Bourdieu on the, your left, and William Judas Wilson, my mentor at Chicago, on the right. Two wonderful mentors to have, I can tell you. Not only because they were, they were and are fabulous intellectuals, but they were just fabulous persons, the two of them. So I, I count myself as blessed that to be their friend, to be their friend, even more so than having been a student. So what I'm going to do is, what I try to do in these two books, I try to disentangle the triangular nexus of class, race, and state in space. And essentially to do that into a trilogy. I'll take you quickly around the triangle of those relations and to show you how the different books are organized and each sort of tackle the side of that triangle. Uh, and then when you, I think, see the triangle and see the relation, you, you, I think you'll get more out of each book by realizing that it only tells you part of the story and that you have to see it in this topological relational, uh, in this relational fashion. But essentially, the, the story starts when I uh, landed in Chicago in 1985. I arrived from the South Pacific, where I just spent two years as a young sociologist learning the craft as part of my military service in a small colony island uh, called New Caledonia, where I'm returning to next, uh, in two weeks, for the first time in 30 years, and I'm really excited about it. Um, <laughs> I landed in Chicago and I had the shock of experiencing the remnants of the ghetto of Chicago. 
And I became interested in understanding, I became associated with Bill Wilson. It was a triple shock first encountering Chicago South Side, the lunar landscape of extreme segregation, intense poverty, rampant violence, and rampant fear about that space. And that space was literally on my doorstep. I, had, I was given the last student housing unit that nobody wanted. Um, <laughs> Precisely because it was at the edge of the poor black neighborhood of Woodlawn, one of the, and the University of Chicago campus is surrounded north, west, and south by the remnants of the historic ghetto of Bronzeville. And then on the right hand side by Lake Michigan, so it's really that corner. And so it was, it was really a total shock for a European to see scenes of devastation that, were, that evoked more Dresden after the war than they evoked certainly, you know, uh, 20th century America. Um, but also, it was a shock of meeting Bill Wilson and getting hired as his research assistant and becoming his close collaborator very quickly and finding myself writing, uh, co-authoring papers with him about a world that I, that I still didn't understand very well. And, and I became interested in figuring out um, the social transformation of the inner city as it was formulated. And really what became the collapse of the ghetto. I became interested in particular in the relationship between class as a principle rooted in the market, and you can go with the Marxist or the Baron definition, it really doesn't matter, market capacity, position in relation to production, but essentially this is your material order, and here this is your art order of honor. And ethnicity is a generic category, and then I consume race as a specific subtype of ethnicity, because it's a cultural, culturally constructed symbolic division that has no foundation in nature, but claims to be founded in nature. So it's a denigrated form of ethnicity. It's an ethnicity that tells you, I am not ethnic. <laughs> I'm rooted in the necessities of biology and not in the vagaries of history, when in fact it's a particular historical construction of the world. So I became interested in the relationship between class and race, and the transformation of the black American ghetto, continued racial segregation, but transformation of the institutional structure of the ghetto, transformation of the rise of the black middle class, the impoverishment, the impoverishment of the black working class. And the third element of the triangle was the element of state because what I discovered, um, and, then, and then the third element that, that, that led me further uh, was the, the rise of the moral panic over the ghetto of the French, the ghetto, the ghettoization of the French banlieue or the ghettoization of the inner city of the Netherlands or the ghettoization of the uh, housing estates of England and so on and so forth. Western Europe during that time in the late 80s or 90s became swept by a moral panic that's, that said that essentially immigrant neighborhood or formerly working class neighborhoods with large concentrations of immigrants are turning into ghettos. This is terrible, without anybody knowing actually what they really meant by the term ghetto. So I became interested in this relationship, and the reason why it became a triangle and not simply uh, the flat line at the bottom is that I discovered that the social transmission of the ghetto was really economically underdetermined and politically overdetermined by the state. So I needed to bring the state into that story, which I hadn't expected uh, at the beginning. And so this is the story that's told in Urban Outcast. Urban Outcast essentially mines that, that the base of the triangle. And, 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 and it tells, put very quickly, it tells the following story. It does three things. It explains the state and fate of the ghetto after the 1960s riot against the tale of the, the academic myth of the urban underclass, 
um, against the disorganization framework of the Chicago School. It goes beyond the idea that economic forces and mismatches explain the derelict state of the inner city. This was Bill Wilson's theory. It goes beyond the thesis of Douglas Massey in American Apartheid that simply racial separation is this constant that explains a variable outcome. And it argues that what we've observed between 1970 and the, 19, the 1990s is a shift from the communal, the communal ghetto of the 40s era, 1915 to 1965, to a new uh, structure uh, that I characterize as the hyper-ghetto. Uh, that is a different urban animal. And the process of hyper-ghettoization, argue, is politically overdetermined. State policies of urban retrenchment, social disinvestment, and penal reinvestment in those areas and the collapse of state institutions turning into negative social capital explains the current state of the inner city, to use the uh, geographic uh, euphemism that, that my American colleagues uh, prefer. And so, so that's, that's part one. And then I go uh, across the Atlantic and I compare the evolution of the black American ghetto, which is the neighborhood situated at the bottom of the system of places that composes the city, the one at the bottom of the material order, at the bottom of the symbolic order, so the neighborhood of relegation. And I go to the comparable, structurally comparable neighborhood in Western Europe, which are the urban periphery, the large housing estates uh, concentrated in the urban periphery of the European metropolis. And I compare the structure, the experience, and the dynamics of urban relegation in Western Europe, or in France, and in the US. And, and, and this helps me in a sense a mutual elucidation of the two cases. This in a sense forces me to become a little more reflexive. And this leads me to refute the thesis of convergence, the thesis that there's a convergence, a transatlantic convergence on the pattern of the black American ghetto of Western Europe, and to characterize it to, and to develop a series of concepts. So it forces me to then uh, leave the folk notion, inchoate notion of ghetto that scholars are using without knowing really what they mean by it. It, it leads me to construct a concept of the ghetto, then to construct the concept of hyper-ghetto, then to construct the concept of anti-ghetto to contrast the Western European case to the United States, and to refute the thesis of convergence. And then, third element of the book, uh, third thesis of the book, I put forth the thesis of emergence. So I refute convergence, and I put forth the thesis of emergence. Emergence of what? A new regime of urban marginality. Um, that is, and then I draw out the consequences, the implications of this, the rise of this new regime for social theory, for policy, for the comparative sociology, for polarization. And to sum up, so I call this new regime advanced marginality because it is neither residual, it's not the remnants of a bygone age that's behind us, nor is it a cyclical phenomenon, but it lies ahead of us. At the time when I'm writing, first in you know, the early uh, 1990s, um, it is inscribed in the future of advanced society, subject to the strains of capitalist deregulation, that is, re-regulation in favor of firms. Mm -hmm. To sum up, advanced marginality is superseding the ghetto on the US side and superseding the traditional working class territory on the European side. And it is the product of the fragmentation of the wage-labor relationship, of the functional disconnection between neighborhoods of relegation and national and global economy, of territorial stigmatization, and of the retraction of the protections traditionally afforded by the social state. So that's the story of that, at the bottom of that triangle. Now, you see under, there's also the body and body and soul. Now, for moral and epistemological reasons, I felt like I, I couldn't do research on the black American ghetto without going in the ghetto. 
and, and getting a sense concretely of what life is like in this terra incognita of American social science because 99% of American scholars who write about the ghetto have never set foot in a poor black neighborhood. And so I, I wanted to carry out field work to uh, pierce through the screen of the underclass and the disorganization framework of the Chicago School. And so I find a, a boxing gym. So I, I wanted to use, and this became the book eventually, uh, Body and Soul. I wanted to use the boxing gym as a tool, as an observation post to understand everyday life and reconstruct my sense of what a ghetto is from the ground up. What I hadn't anticipated is that I would get drawn uh, by the magnetism of Christ fighting and that I would eventually spend three years learning uh, the craft and then eventually develop a second research subject, which was the social logic of, of a bodily craft uh, of boxing. And so this becomes, in a sense, a complementary book from, uh, from um, to, to, to Urban Outcasts. I find. So during those years, I found myself simultaneously working on two projects, seemingly very different, but in fact sort of nested uh, one into uh, the other, tightly linked. On the one side, a carnal micro-sociology of the apprenticeship of boxing as a subproletarian bodily craft in the ghetto, giving us a slice of life and labor in the ghetto from the standpoint of the agent, um, from below, from inside, and then a historical and theoretical macro-sociology of the ghetto as an instrument of ethno-racial closure and social domination, providing a generalizing perspective from above and from the outside, the two complementing each other. And both of these inquiries are guided by the principles and the concepts that you can find in an invitation to reflexive sociology, which was the book that I was writing with Pierre Bourdieu during the same years as I was doing uh, field work uh, in the gym and, and on the streets of around the gym. Now, it, I mentioned this not to put in a plug and to get a few more readers for what I so, uh, but because, because this is what gets me to prison. This is what essentially, this is what essentially forced me to go to prison, I literally. Um, <laughs> the logic of the boxing research and the surprises of the field work, discovering that everybody in my gym had done time, or when I asked the old coach, Didi, Didi, how many of the guys in the gym have, you know, have, have stayed at the Great Bar Hotel? <laughs> and he looked at me, kind of asked us and said, what do you mean, Louis? They all, they all done time. You mean you and me in prison? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have to say that I haven't. But I did have to go to prison because it made me realize that uh, collecting the life stories of my boxer friends and the Woodlawn gym made me realize nearly all of them had spent time behind bars. And I found out the prison is both a central and a banal institution in the hyper-ghetto, and if I wanted to understand the trajectory of their life, I had to understand the intrusion of the penal state, and then I had to, then I sort of turned around and I discovered this, this, this gigantic expansion of the US penal state over the last 30 years, just as there was the shrinking of social welfare, just as there was the rise of advanced marginality, couldn't the three phenomena be somehow connected? <laughs> <laughs> but, but so you see how the, the, the doing the research and and wanting to construct your object well and wanting to pierce through that screen of discourses about the underclass and going back to the things themselves, as Meryl Ponty would say, starting from the ground up. So let me, gave me the instruments to rebuild you know, the, 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 very, the very concepts, reformulate the very question that I was proposing. So now, return to advanced marginality. Once advanced marginality has set in, the question arises, how will the state respond to the rise of its marginality how will the state manage the string of quote social problems or social pathologies that the state that advanced marginality brings in its way? How, how will the state, the state contain the reverberating effects and at the same time incite the precarious strata of the new urban proletariat, the precariat, 
to accept the unstable, unpaid, underpaid jobs of the deregulated service economy. This answer is offered by the second book. Punishing the poor, it sets minds, the class transformation, the rise of the precariat in the neighborhoods of relegation, and how this is both produced by a set of changes in state policies, and how in turn the rise of the precariat facilitates the shift of social policies in a particular relationship, in a sort of dynamic relationship. Um, and when we are talking about the state here, we see that there are two, there are two barriers, there are two sides to the state. These are the two, the left hand and the right hand of the state schema. This is social welfare on the left hand side, the protective side of the state that is supposed to help and protect those short of economic and cultural capital. And then the disciplinary side of the state with the <coughs> model, the treasury department, the finance department, the economic department, which wants to cut the budget, but also, this is what I add in my book, one of the constituent elements of the right hand of the state is the police, the prison, the police, the courts, the prison system, the penal wing of the state is a core element of the state and its transformation is part and parcel of the remaking of the state during that very era. It's part and parcel of the building of the neoliberal state. And so, the, so now you, you can see how the two books relate to each other and how to the degree that you have an ethnic division that this will impact mediates that, that relationship. Um, so in, in, um, in Punishing the Poor, I dissect the invention of a new government of social insecurity, which weds the discipline of warfare on the social side, and the constraint wielded by a hypertrophic and hyper, hyperactive police and penal apparatus on the criminal justice side. Now, one of the ways to sort of compress this into a, a sentence is to say in 1971, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Clower published a, you know, a, a, one of the classics of social science, a book called Regulating the Poor, in which they show that poor relief evolves in cyclical manner. Welfare, poor relief, expands when, the, when unemployment uh, uh, goes up, where poverty goes up, where the poor threaten disruption. You expand welfare to placate them, to, to take care of the most extreme forms of poverty. And when the labor market returns, when the economy goes on an up cycle, you contract welfare because you need to push people back into the labor market um, and, restore the, and restore the work ethic. Uh, my thesis is that this was true during the long industrial Keynesian era, roughly 1880-1980. But in the, in, the, in the two closing century decades of the last century, and in our decade, uh, this, uh, this regime of regulation of poverty in the age of hypermobile capital and insecure employment, regulating the poor no longer operates through the welfare system alone, but rather involves an institutional linkage connecting the assistential and the penitential sectors of the state. And I argue that this op operates with a gender division of labor. The social welfare, so that is the shift from protective welfare to disciplinary warfare, concerns primarily women and their children. And the shift from the rehabilitative prison to the neutralizing, punishing, so the prison that was supposed to reintegrate people, that was supposed to be limited, that everybody around the 1970s thought the prison was on its way out, going to disappear, the US was going to lead the way to a nation without prison, and so on and so forth. And then the prison has resurged in a massive way, but it hasn't simply expanded. It has also changed its philosophy of operation. It's moved away from rehabilitation towards simply neutralization and retribution. And so what happens is that there's a gender division of labor where workfare handles 
the women and their children, and what I call prison fare by analogy, rolling out the police, the courts, and the prison system and their expansion in order to contain and curtail the disorders created by the onset of immense marginality at the bottom of the class structure and bottom of the system of places that compose the city. That this rolling out is gendered in that prison fare will capture the men, and it is the men of those women. It's just, just not men and women. It's the, it's the husbands, the brothers, the sons of the women who are on the workfare side. That is, it's the same households and the same lineages, lineages and the same families who are essentially being put on this, under this double disciplinary tutelage of the revamped state through restrictive workfare and expensive uh, prison fare. So social policy and penal policy have converged and have fused. They now follow the same behaviorist philosophy, the same notion of contract and personal responsibility, the same mechanisms of surveillance, record keeping, the same techniques of supervision and rituals of degradation. I'll just mention one. For instance, if you are a TANF recipient, temporary assistance to, uh, for needy families in, in, in Michigan, you, are, you get drug tested uh, monthly. And when you go to your drug testing, you go and stand in line with uh, ex-prisoners who are on parole who get drug tested and who are effectively mixed and you know in the same uh, in the same population. You are already mixed in the same population because that guy is your cousin or your across the across the street neighbor. Uh, chances are. Uh, so punishing the poor takes up the class state's nexus on both the social and the penal front. It charts the wedding of restrictive workfare and expensive prison fare, and it shows how this wedding partakes of the neoliberal project properly conceptualized. Hypertrophic, a hypertrophic and a hyperactive penal wing is not an anomaly, it's not a deviation from neoliberalism, it's not a tautological development that would require some, some separate explanation. It is a constituent element of the building of the neoliberal Leviathan. Because the neoliberal Leviathan is a centaur state. It has a liberal head practicing laissez-faire and laissez-passer towards the top, mounted on a paternalist and punitive body turns towards the lower classes. Uh, now, you will say, but then we are still, so this is the story told in punishing the poor. Um, um, and then, but of course it leaves one last element of the triangle. And it's the, the role of ra racial division uh, as a delegated form of ethnicity impacting both the formation of the precariat and accelerating class fragmentation, the inability of the working class to resist to the degree that it is separated by <coughs> blacks and whites in the United States primarily, but also with Latinos and in Western Europe uh, with uh, Im immigrants versus uh, nationals, or contempor contemporarily in France, uh, the Sinti and Roma, the Romanians, you know, the Roms versus you know the the other uh, foreigners versus uh, versus the nationals. And so it becomes, it's so complicated that it deserves its own book. <laughs> so it's, it's the most complicated thing that I've written. In fact, it's not even finished in part because I keep finding new things and I can never close it. But essentially, the, that's the third book that Esendiosis looks at. And get a preview on the cover. Um, so race is crucially involved in both the production of urban marginality, as you can, as you can see on, on the bottom uh, side, um, and in its political management. So this is complicated, theoretically. This is the book, uh, Deadly Symbiosis, Race and the Rise of the Penal State. This is actually, uh, uh, this is a cover from seven years ago when I thought uh, I finished the book then. Uh, I refailed it, I took it back from publication because I wasn't happy. And, and I, I, I'm still struggling to be happy with it so I can finish it. 
but the book examines first how ethno-racial partition, how ethno-racial partition um, accelerates and lubricates penalization, intensifies. So to the degree that you have a population that is sharply divided by an ethno-racial border, where those on the other side are seen as not us, then it facilitates rolling out restrictive programs on the welfare side and expensive punitive programs on the, on the penal side. Essentially because overwhelmingly the broader citizenry doesn't identify with the people who are being harshly policed and harshly prosecuted and, and, <coughs> and, 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 and then detained uh, under terrible conditions. Um, so, and then on the other side, this is the part that is more difficult and to me more interesting then, uh, is how the state then transforms racial division. How the fact that you're moving towards a workfare, coom, prison fair state actually reworks racial division in the case of the United States transforms blackness. Uh, so the book starts uh, with a historical and a theoretical model of the mutual interpenetration of the collapsing hyperghetto and the over, overgrown prison in the United States or, uh, and putting this in the context of four centuries of racial domination in the United States. Then it moves to Western Europe to encompass the over-incarceration of post-colonial migrants in the European Union. And then it, and it, it takes us down to Brazil to plumb the militarization of marginality in the Brazilian metropolis as the revelator of the deeper logic of penalization. Essentially, I use the Brazil case to say, this is the hidden truth of the American and the Western case. It's when you remove restrictions, when you have a state that is not a rationalized, bureaucratic state that respects human rights, that you have the misrule of the law, but when you penalize, essentially what you end up doing is you end up treating the stigmatized poor from your derelict neighborhood as an enemy of the state, and you end up rolling out your tanks and your helicopters and so on. This is the pacification policies that we are seeing right now going on in Rio to prepare Rio for the Olympic Games and the World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, so now, for those who are interested, and if you didn't have enough to read, um, <laughs> there are two further extensions of this. Um, Urban outcasts and deadly symbiosis led to the re conceptual reconstruction of the ghetto as a mode of ethno-racial domination, um, differentiating the ghetto clearly from segregation, from poverty, from the ethnic cluster, and so on and so forth. This is the book, The Two Fates of the Ghetto, of which a truncated um, version came out in multiple languages, but not in English. I'm actually finishing this month, hopefully, the English language version, but it keeps changing, so it may never come out. Um, no, it will come out. Uh, next year with, uh, University of, uh, with Oxford University Press. Um, and then there's the story of the internationalization. There's the story of the internationalization, the, interna the international circulation of punitive containment as a technique for managing the poor in the city. And that's the story told in the first book that came out of the topic, the book uh, Prisons of Poverty, um, uh, that essentially looks at uh, the international circulation of the penalization of poverty as a policy formula as part and parcel of the neoliberal revolution spanning, sweeping the globe under the leadership as, as, of such think tanks as the Manhattan Institute, which both invented them. So it's interesting to show you the connections, that I didn't invent these connections. To go back to the diagram, the same institute that promoted a zero tolerance policy for policing, that, that sold it to Mayor Giuliani in New York, the Manhattan Institute, was the same institute that, that produced that helped produce the, scho the scholarship, in quotation marks, uh, of, uh, who's the author of Losing Ground? Charles Murray. Ch advocating that, you know, advocating cutting welfare. The Manhattan Institute first in the 1980s advocated we should cut welfare because the poor are poor because they are parasites. They, we give them too, too much, you know, and we maintain them in part. So we should cut welfare. The same institute 
10 years later advocated we should have zero tolerance policing and, and use New York City as a platform to sell that to the rest of the world. And then they went around the world <laughs> and sold, uh, and sold uh, the, two, the two policies as, as complementary uh, to each other. Now, to articulate this triad, I, I, I used, I deployed a small number of concepts that are tightly interrelated, allow you to travel across empirical domains, across levels of abstraction, ranging all the way from the individual and even intra-individual processes with the notion of habitudes, to the largest of macro structures, such as the neoliberal revolution. They're all taken, as I indicated, from an invitation to reflexive sociology, the notion of habitudes, the notion of social space, as the multidimensional distribution of efficient properties, the notion of symbolic power and bureaucratic field as a way to rethink the state. The bureaucratic field is a force field and a battlefield over the definition of the distribution of public goods. Bourdieu invites us to rethink the state as the monopolizer of legitimate symbolic violence, the capacity to impose identities, categories, efficient names, the fount of official and consequent classifications, as the producer of habitus through the school system. <coughs> as the agency that imposes categories, produces social space, and shapes physical space by a variety of regulations that lead to the built environment. And in each book, I develop a set of concepts. I introduce, the, I, I, I characterize the notion of ghetto. I construct a sociological concept of the ghetto, where there was none. Not that social scientists haven't used the term ghetto, but they have used it in completely incoherent ways for 100 years. And, and not only that, um, they've used it in ways that mirrors the worries of, of urban elites. That is, the concept of the ghetto changes meaning, its semantic space expands and contracts, in keeping with the worries of urban elites about which group creates what problem for the city. And sociologists, instead of saying, we shouldn't use a folk concept that expresses the worry of urban elites, have sort of jumped you know, head over heels and say, well, the, the ghetto is this, this, during this decade, but you know, now it's that. And then a decade later, you pick up something else. So what I did, I constructed the concept of the ghetto, a rigorous concept of the ghetto. That's what I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, or I'll probably not get the time. Um, I also constructed the concept of hybrid ghetto, which I can contrast with the communal ghetto. And then I construct the concept of anti-ghetto to dissect changing spatial containers at the bottom of the system of places individualizing cities. And then I elaborate uh, taking, mating Goffman's work on stigma and Bourdieu's work on symbolic uh, power, I forged the concept of territorial stigmatization to capture how spatial taint attached to neighborhoods of relegation affects the social fabric of those neighborhoods, affects the subjectivity of those who live, live in them and who feel uh, unworthy and who feel they have to distance themselves from their neighbors, who feel that they have to take the stigma and, and use it on their neighbors and on, and on people across the street and so on and so forth, and also how Spatial taint affects the gaze of outsiders towards these neighbors, but also, very importantly, state policies. And, and, uh, and so I put forward that a characterization of this new regime of urban marginality. And same thing with, so these are the concepts that are issued out of urban outcasts, and these are the concepts that are issued out of uh, punishing the poor. Uh, I propose that we shift from mass incarceration, which is a, doesn't make any sense, to hyper-incarceration, because incarceration is highly selective. It's selected by class first, by ethnicity second, and by place third. And as much as you ramp up your, your, your prison system, you're only ever striking at the bottom of that dual order of 
class and honor. You're targeting always the dispossessed and the dishonored, such that mass incarceration is a, is a non-starter because there is no such thing as mass incarceration. You're only ever striking at uh, that very narrow population. So what you have is you have the hyper-incarceration of lower-class black men in America, yes. That's a very different phenomenon than the mass, mass incarceration. Indeed, one of the reasons why so-called mass incarceration developed is because it wasn't a mass phenomenon. Because if it had, if it had targeted, if the people state had been rolled out indiscriminately across all neighborhoods and had captured large numbers of the sons and daughters of the white middle class, that policy would have been stopped dead in its track. Mm -hmm. It's precisely because it never <coughs> was a mass phenomenon, it was always very finely targeted by class first, by ethnicity second, and by place, in, the, in and around the hyper ghetto that these extreme rates of, hyper, of, of incarceration uh, could develop. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. 
stop by the bike kitchen, and then get riding. Oscar Peterson was born in Montreal of Caribbean parents in 1925. In his lifetime, he became regarded by many as the greatest jazz pianist in the world. Among Peterson's innumerable awards and honors were Grammys, the International Jazz Hall of Fame Award, Junos, the Order of Canada, the Order of Arts and Letters in France, the Governor General's Performing Arts Award, and many honorary degrees. Although best known as a pianist rather than a composer, in 1964 Peterson released the Canadiana Suite, an album of eight original compositions in tribute to Canada. Next is a clip off the album entitled Hogtown Blues, Peterson's Ode to the City of Toronto. This PSA was brought to you in support of Black History Month on CITR 101.9 FM. And welcome back. You're on the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And uh, for the majority of the hour, you heard from uh, Louis Wacant, and he's an urban sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and also a research- researcher with the European Center of Sociology and Political Science in Paris. And um, his research focuses on urban marginality, polarization, uh, the penal state, and ethno-racial domination, among a variety of other uh, different uh, thematic research areas. And in that, you were hearing a lecture uh, recorded uh, on November 1st, 2012, um, a public lecture he gave um, entitled The Production and Penalization of the Precariat in the Neoliberal Age. And Louis Wacant is author of numerous articles and books, among them Urban Outcasts, A Comparative Sociology of Advanced Marginality, Prisons of Poverty, and Punishing the Poor, the Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity. And that about does it for the show. That was um, uh, the first half of that um, lecture that we heard uh, this hour, and the the, um, second half of that lecture um, will be broadcast uh, next week, uh, so you can catch the rest of that and build upon the idea of the hyper-ghetto, which is uh, something uh, specifically that uh, Louis Quacant really develops and builds upon um, to see the role of the ghetto um, transformed into the hyper-ghetto, um, the ghetto of advanced marginality, um, which is very much racialized, and he draws parallels uh, to the, the urban periphery in Paris um, as well, and then also a great deal of his work uh, was based on uh, the ghetto or the hyper ghetto as as he terms it in uh, the south side of Chicago. So that lecture um, and that um, address that he gave here on the University of British Columbia campus will be continued um, next week on The City. Again, you can catch The City uh, here on CATR live um, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and also syndicated on CJSF Burnaby every two, every, excuse me, every Friday at 10 to 11 a.m., and up next, we have uh, Flex Your Head here on CATR coming up next at 6 p.m. And then also, if you're tuning in, syndicated on CGSF, uh, 11 a.m., you have Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman uh, coming up. And I do want to remind you uh, that if you like what you hear, check it out, www.thecityfm.org. You can find a full podcast archive 
and um, a lot of also exclusive uh, web content there as well. So take a look. Again, www.thecityfm.org. Also check The City out on Facebook um, by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions, and follow The City on Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM. And um, again, be sure to tune in live. Um, and if you have any comments or feedback or ideas for programming, interviews, uh, stories you'd like covered, um, drop me a line. That's Andrew at the city fm.org again andrew at the city fm.org um and you can also leave comments on the website facebook or by tweeting me on twitter again the city underscore fm thanks so much for tuning in we're going to be back next week um with that second half of louis quicant's uh lecture and address um but until then uh have a wonderful week and thank you so much for tuning in billion dollars on the ground, all stretched out and uncurled, would extend about four times around the circumference of the world. Become a friend of CITR and get great discounts in the West End at 212 Productions Limited, The Baker and the Chef, Bang on T-Shirts, Vistrude Records, Dream Apparel and Articles for People, Don Levy Snack Bar, The Fall Tattoon, Fortune Sound Club, Hits Boutique, Pacific Cinematic, Perch, Project Space, Scratch Records, Vinyl Records, and Zusha. It pays to be a friend of CITR. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or online at citr.ca.